The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Bring us up to speed. Last week we looked at okay, introducing the uh, the garden and what it what it pictures and what it really represents. And we said that the garden is really about God creating an ideal space and place for man to meet with and live in God's presence. And so we want to look in the next couple of weeks in detail how God designed the garden as a place to be with Him. Uh, now. For this to, to be interesting or to have any sense in our life, um, it, it assumes that being with God is something we all actually want. So we've got to start there. Uh, I hope and pray that living daily, experiencing God's presence is something that you long for and desire. Okay? If, uh, if we have this mindset that we, you know, we live on this earth and Jesus came to die and save us so that someday... When we're dead, we get to be with God and live in His presence. Then this really won't make any sense to us. But if we have a sense or notion that God's intention and plan is for us to daily live in His presence, then this passage will have meaning. So I don't ask you to raise your hand or anything, but that's the starting point. Do you really want to live and know God intimately and deeply and personally in your life? Well, the good news about the garden is that God created us in the world for that very thing. Okay, and that's what the garden is about. It's a place where God created for, for man to walk with and live in God's presence. And, of course, that was lost through sin. Um, the temple, as we talked about a little bit, and we'll see that more, the temple really was a picture of the garden. The temple was trying to recapture, in a very small chunk of real estate, what the, what the garden was about. A lot of the symbol and imagery of the temple points back to the garden. And its function was the same. The temple was what? Well, it was a place where man could encounter God face to face, or at least the high priest. Everybody else kind of could get close. But the idea is that, like with the tabernacle, uh, God wanted them to have this tent of his presence so that he could be in their midst. And, of course, Jesus, uh, being the ultimate fulfillment of all of that, uh, through his death on the cross really has come to restore for us the garden, or in, in other terms, to rip the veil of the temple and give us access into God's presence. So today, the whole point of the gospel is that God wants to be with you, and he wants you to experience him in very real, tangible ways. He wants you to know him personally, not just to know him as a God who is out there in space somewhere, but to know him like you know your best friend or better, and to have a relationship with him that's so real and so close and so intimate and personal that uh, you can say you know God. Okay, That's what the garden's about. Uh, in New Testament terms, you know, it, it puts it in terms like this in Ephesians 3. It says, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, God will you empower you with inner strength through his spirit so that Christ can make his home in your hearts. Great picture. John 15 talks about abiding in Christ, right? So the garden is a picture of that. It is the, the prototype, if you will, of that life. And it really is the, what we were designed and created for. Uh, so how do we do that? 
How can we know him? Now, the garden uh, conjures up images that I think are somewhat true, but not complete. But it, it conjures up images of total solitude, right? Some garden, some remote place, which is you and God. And for me, my, my thoughts oftentimes of the garden is this life of just being kind of a hermit and a monk, where you spend 12, 18 hours a day in contemplative prayer, you know, in a garden, right? And you're thinking, well, you know, I want God's presence, but that just really doesn't sound all that exciting. And um, interestingly, a lot of people's conception of heaven is very similar. You know, the whole harp on the cloud thing and just kind of chilling, doing nothing, but like contemplating God for eternity. I remember, you know, talking to people who have said, I'm not sure I really want eternity. It sounds just terribly boring if all we're going to do is just nothing but somehow be with God, right? Well, the good news is being with God is much more than that. And the garden really paints a picture of life that's very full and complete. And it pictures of a means of connecting with God true through, true through solitude and through prayer, through contemplation, through a simpler lifestyle we talked about last week. But there are many other ways in which we connect and experience God's presence in our daily life. And the, the garden teaches us this. Uh, so let's look at how we do that. And this morning we're going to focus specifically on knowing God through our work, working in the garden. Okay, And we talked a little bit last week how you know, this is supposed to be paradise, and, and paradise is full of work. And you know, we're all hoping that someday we'll escape from work. But actually, before the fall, before sin, work was very much a part of the garden, part of life in the garden. And uh, you know, we have to ask ourselves, why? Why did God plan work? Uh, and I really believe its significance is that we experience God's presence in our life through our labor, through our work, that there was a purpose in work, more than just supplying food. You know, God could easily have, you know, he did, it, he did it with Israel, he provided the manna. He could easily have done that in the garden. If he wanted them to have a life of total luxury and leisure, just to, you know, sit and meditate and contemplate God, uh, he could have made it so that food just bubbled up out of the ground. And they could just sit. They wouldn't even have to move. You know, they could just sit. They wouldn't need legs or arms. They could just be blobs that sit there and kind of soak up nutrients from the soil, right? We could just be, we could be like a tomato. And you know, that could be spiritual life. But see, God didn't do it that way. He, he gave us work because work is one of the means that we connect with and know and experience God's presence. So let's look at that in, in the garden. Uh, first of all, uh, when you look at the, the account here, uh, Genesis 2 is, is backing up. And Genesis 1 gives uh, the work of creation as a whole. Then chapter 2 backs up a little bit, and he begins with uh, the phrase, this is the account uh, of the creation of the heavens, the generations. And that becomes a chapter marking throughout the book of Genesis. Each new section begins with this phrase, uh, the generations, or the, the account of the descendants of uh, Adam, of, of, uh, of each of the patriarchs, of each of these characters. And in this case, it's the creation, the descendants of heaven and earth itself. And so God rewinds a bit, and he looks specifically at the part of creation that has to do with man. All right? So you've got to understand the context here is not creation as a whole. He's not looking at the whole earth. He's now zeroing in 
on specifically Eden and the garden. And he says that, that uh, when the Lord God made the earth, uh, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not set yet rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. So uh, this is not, a lot of people get real confused about this. It's like, you know, on day three it said he created the plants, and now he didn't create the plants, and like, are they confused? Well, here's the picture. Day three, God created the land and the plants. And he filled the earth with trees and vegetation, all kinds of good stuff. However, uh, in, in Eden, which was probably somewhere in Mesopotamia, somewhere like between the Mediterranean Sea and like China, big, big path there, you know, <laughs> somewhere, uh, it's a desert, right? It's a desert. Now, um, my picture, actually, maybe if we could kill those lights, you could see my picture better. Oftentimes when we think of the garden, how do you picture the garden of Eden? Well, not all the lights. Just those lights. <laughs> I need these lights or I can't see. There we go. Uh, still can't see the picture very well. Uh, this is actually Van Gogh's picture called The Sower. And the foreground is supposed to be a barren, empty dirt field. And behind is grain ready to be harvested and beyond that the sun. And the shadowy figure there is the sower. Uh, when you picture the garden, when you picture the Garden of Eden, what is your image of the garden? Usually, I mean, you know, all, the, all the Sunday school books, which are absolutely inspired, divine, you know, God-given Sunday school quarterlies, you know, it's got, it's got this jungle. And I know why they have an, a jungle. They have this jungle because you've got to have the leaves appropriately positioned to cover Adam and Eve. Right? That's the whole deal. You know, Adam and Eve in this scene, you couldn't put that in the Sunday school quarterly. Out there, just you know, naked, throwing grain, right? So you got to have a jungle. Uh, and a lot of times we picture, you know, Eden as being this tropical place, because that's kind of how we review paradise. Has something to do with Hawaii or something. Because the people reading Genesis, uh, the original audience would have had no idea what Hawaii or Thailand looked like, right? They lived in a desert. They lived in the Middle East, and for them. Paradise was a fertile plain waiting for irrigation and cultivation. All right? So for them, Eden would have been conceived much more like this. A big flat plain, all right, a garden, a good soil ready to plant wheat or barley or rye. Okay, those are the kinds of crops that they... And so for them, and, 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 and in fact, Eden probably was much more fit this description. And uh, we know that from Genesis 2. It says that the land of, literally, the field, the field was without plant. And the, uh, the, the hillsides were without shrubs. And it pictures two kinds of terrain. One, a flat, broad plain, which we would consider a field. The other, kind of the roaming, uncultivated hills where they would, where they would pasture their flocks. Okay? That was the land that had, didn't have plants yet. Okay? That doesn't mean there weren't forests and hills and trees and all the other stuff. There were. But specifically in this area called Eden, there was not yet planted crops. Uh, the, the, the fields were barren and empty, waiting to be tilled and irrigated, right? And uh, the, the hillsides were barren. And it says there was two main causes of this. <clears throat> First cause, God had not yet sent the rain. Okay? Uh, and and doesn't mean that it never rained anywhere on the earth. Okay? It doesn't mean places like Thailand where this time of year it rains every day. It hadn't rained yet. But specifically in this region, it had not rained. Okay, he's focusing here, and the focus here is on, is on Eden, not the world at large. 
So he's saying here that, that these fields had not received rain yet. So that was the first problem. God had not sent rain. Second problem was what? Well, there was no farmer. Okay, there was nobody to till and work the soil. So those are the two causes of this barren landscape. No rain, no farmer. Nobody to work the soil, to till it, nobody to plant the seed, nobody to irrigate it. All right? So God sets about to remedy this problem, and he does it in two ways. First of all, it says that he causes a spring to flow up from the ground. Now, a lot of translators, this word translated spring, maybe your Bible says mist, maybe it says rain. It's a word that's very difficult to, to define, and there's no good references to cross-check what it means. So it's gotten translated as all kinds of things, mist, rain, fog, cloud. Um, however, the language is very clear that whatever it is comes up from the ground. All right. Now, it's true that mist can come up from the ground in the form of a geyser all right, uh, or a hot springs. But typically, mist doesn't come up from the ground. What comes up from the ground? Springs, right? Uh, so most likely the word here is referring to a spring. To confirm that in verses 9 through 14, it go, talks in more detail about kind of the mechanics of the garden. And it talks about this spring flowing up out of the ground and forming four rivers. And that this was the source of water or irrigation for the garden. So clearly what he's talking about here is a spring. So the picture is this dry, arid plain. And God caused this great spring to gush up out of the ground. And apparently a very sizable spring because it flowed through the garden and then split into four rivers. So not just a little brook, but this is a significant flow of water. All right, so the water is taken care of. God has supplied for the garden a water source. Now, that in itself will not make stuff grow because you've got this river roaring through this plain. Uh, without somebody to do the work of irrigation, it, nothing's going to grow. Okay? Now, how many of you are farmers and have done irrigating? Anybody? You get out there, it's great fun. This is like boy heaven. You play in the mud. You go out there and you dig ditches and you build little dams and you just make the water grow over. It's great fun. Well, this is what was waiting. Okay, God had this all set up for this irrigation of the soil. So that was first problem taken care of. Second problem, no man. So it says that God formed man from the dust of the, of the ground and breathed into his, his, uh, his nostrils the breath of life and he became the living person. And God plucked him down in the garden. So you get this picture. It's not a beautiful place yet. No tropical jungle, no, no leaves appropriately positioned to hide anything. He's just out there, all, all at him. And, uh, and in this big empty field, and it says in verse uh, 15 that God planted a garden. Um, he, he planted trees, specifically beautiful trees and fruit trees. But, but a lot of it was just this uncultivated field. Right? So that's... That's our job description. God created us to be farmers. Okay, get the picture here? And his, Adam's job description was to cultivate, to work the soil, and to grow stuff, and to tend to the garden that God planted, to weed and to, to bring dominion on it. Remember we said in chapter 1 to bring dominion, to, to rule it, which meant to keep the weeds away, to make it beautiful, to uh, make it useful for him and for God. Okay? Um, so, so what's the principle? How does this, what does this have to do with us connecting with God? Well, what this means is if you really want to know God, you've got to be a farmer and start irrigating. Well, no, not really. Okay. However, I do think 
that uh, if, if we were more connected to the soil, we would learn things about God we kind of miss in our modern world. However, I don't think it's necessary that we all, you know, go out and buy a little patch of ground and start planting rice, as fun as that would be. Um, well, what's the principle here? Well, there's a principle about life, and the principle is simply this, that we are in partnership with God. Okay, God designed the world, and he created a place where the world would operate when man and God work in partnership. Okay, here's the principle. God said, look, I'm going to send the water, but all the water in the world will not grow a crop. Uh, I'm going to create man, and man's going to go out and he's going to work, he's going to dig in the soil, he's going to till things up, he's going to plant seed, he's going to irrigate. But man can't do anything unless God supplies the water. Okay? Later on in Israel, of course, after the garden, one of the things they lost was the tree of life. Something else they lost was this, this brilliant spring okay, that beautifully irrigated the land. Okay? Then they had to start praying for rain, and they had to trust God to send rain. And you get this great picture of life as partnership with God. Okay? God has created a world where he has chosen to limit his activity so that you and I are a significant part of his work. Can you get the picture there? In other words, the plain of Eden, whether it was in the garden or later when they got kicked out, would continually be a desert unless man and God worked together. Okay? Man doing the farming, God providing the rain. All right? So God's created a world where he has chosen to limit his activity to a partnership with us. That's just mind-boggling stuff. I mean, think about the implications of this. Okay, God has set up a world where he could do anything he wants. He just created the world in seven days. All right? For him, farming and gardening would be much more quick and efficient if we weren't in the picture. Right? He could just say, let there be wheat. There's wheat. Let it be harvested. It's harvested. Let there be flour. It's flour. And finally, let there be pizza. Yay! Right? But God chose not to work that way. He chose to limit his activity. And he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to provide the rain. The rest is up to you. Right? You get to dig. You get to plant. You get to water. You get to harvest. You get to grind. You get to bake. I send the rain. Right? Beautiful picture of this partnership with God. We work, but our work is vain without God's supply of rain. God supplies the rain, but it is meaningless unless man is there to do the work. Now, of course, uh, this is true in, in, in farming. It's true in agriculture. But more significantly for us in kind of the New Testament era, as uh, Christian workers living in Thailand who really aren't that interested in growing rice, uh, the principle here is that we have been called not only to govern the world, but to really govern God's kingdom. Okay, God has now sent and has brought to us his kingdom. All right. We are, just as Adam governed the physical world as, as an ambassador under God, not because he owned it, but as a steward of God who owned and was king of all the earth, and he called Adam to rule, to govern, to have dominion over it. In the same way, you and I have been given the stewardship of God's kingdom, of God's spiritual kingdom. God is bringing his kingdom to this world, the kingdom of light, is overcoming the kingdom of darkness. And how is God going to send forth his kingdom? How is it that God is going to spread his kingdom life and light throughout the world? 
Well, the easiest thing would be for God just to zap people, right? To just do it. But does God work that way? No. God has chosen, and I don't understand this, uh, but He has chosen in His sovereign wisdom and mighty power to do His work in partnership with you and I. So that means that the world will be a desert, spiritually empty and void, unless we work in partnership with God. God does not save people single-handedly. Now, He could. And in very rare cases, I've heard where He does, but generally, God does not bring the gospel truth into people's lives apart from human agency. God doesn't just zap people. God raises up laborers in the field to, to work the soil, to bring life to this barren world, to bring spiritual growth through planting spiritual seeds and directing spiritual water into the hearts and lives of people. Of course, the New Testament is full of images and scriptures that portray this. 1 Corinthians 3, 5-9 says, After all, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We are only God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I, Paul, planted the seed in your hearts, and Apollos watered it. But who made it grow? God. It was God who made it grow. It is not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What is important is that God makes the seed grow. Now, I disagree with Paul just a little bit there. It may not be important who, but it is important that somebody sows. Right? It is important that somebody is out sowing and watering and planting and harvesting. All right. God has, God has said from the garden onward that He will... He will send the rain. He will cause the growth. But the planting of the seed is dependent on you and I. Um, John chapter 4, after meeting with the woman at the well, and uh, Jesus says, look up, look up and behold the harvest. Look around you. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you did not plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather their harvest. Okay. Principle, New Testament principle is simply this, that uh, there will be no spiritual fruit, there will be no one coming to Christ, there will be no one discipled and growing in the Word apart from man working in cooperation and partnership with God. God will not do it on his own. Uh, your neighbors here will never know Jesus unless somebody plants the word, seed of the word. The countries around here and the villages and the countless people across Asia who are not in direct personal contact with the believer of Christ will never come to know Jesus unless somebody goes to them and proclaims Christ. Uh, even new believers who come to Christ will never grow unless people are sowing into their lives the word and truth, right? discipling them, mentoring them, uh, by example, showing them uh, how to live and walk and, and, and know Christ. Right? So God has restricted from creation. He has set up a world where we are in partnership with him. And so we do till the soil of people's hearts. We sow the seed we do get to gather the harvest as we work in partnership with God. And it's true in our own personal lives. 
Um, you know, God's just not going to zap you into Christian maturity. Okay, you've got to do some work. You've got to be tilling up the soil of your heart. Uh, sometimes that means digging deep into your life and tearing things up. Painful. It means weeding. Okay, it means pulling out of your life things that don't belong there. Okay, exercising some dominion, self-discipline, you know, those kind of things. Um, but it's not a solo act. We don't just do those things independently of God. God is reigning continually, pouring out His reign, His Spirit in our life to, to take the effort that we put forth and make it fruitful and productive. So anytime we tre- teach, share, witness, live life, our testimony, uh, we work in cooperation with God. We work in partnership with Him. Uh, so the, the, this, we can go in two extremes on this and be in trouble. One extreme is if we go to the extreme of thinking that the work completely depends on us. Right? A good sign of this is a person who's working for God, uh, laboring in the field, doing all kinds of stuff, but they never pray and they never trust the Holy Spirit to pour down rain on their effort. Okay? And uh, what you get is people who work very hard, do a lot of stuff, maybe outwardly look successful, but never bears fruit, never bears lasting eternal fruit. Okay, the other extreme would be the person who says, what's God's problem, you know? What can I do? I'm just a human being. I'm sinful myself. I messed up myself. I can't fix myself. So I'll just let God take care of it, you know? I'm not going to share Christ. I'm not going to be a witness. I'm not going to disciple anybody. You know, that's God's problem. He's big. He's powerful. He's much better at this than me. And maybe, you know, you pray a lot, but you don't ever do anything, all right? Okay, God says it won't work. It will be a barren desert unless we work uh, in sync and in partnership with the Father. And the cool thing in all this, of course, in this, uh, one more scripture, Romans 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on Him to save them unless they believe? And how can they believe if they have never heard? And how can they hear unless someone tells them? Right? Unless someone tells them. So God, this is incredible, just as He put the whole world in Adam and Eve's hands to, to have rule and dominion. In the same way, God has put His kingdom in our hands. Amazing. Okay, you and I, every one of us who is a follower of Christ, we've been given the stewardship and responsibility of carrying God's kingdom. God's work is absolutely dependent on you and I. All right, to the degree that we are obedient and do the work He's called us to, His kingdom will move forward. But what does this have to do with, with knowing God, experiencing God? Well, clearly, the implication here is that we do meet God through our work. That as we learn to work in partnership with God, we powerfully experience His presence. You know, the question is, the question always is, why did God pick such an inefficient way to deal with the world and His kingdom? I mean, doesn't He know what's at stake here? His kingdom. He put it in my hands. What a bad idea. What was He thinking? Right? Why would He do that? Why would He tie Himself to us? The infinite, all-powerful, mighty God who can speak anything. Why would he limit himself and tie himself to us? Well, I don't know all the answers to that, but clearly one answer from the garden is that it's through that partnership with him that we experience his presence in our daily life. Okay? 
Okay, so it's not just working that we're experiencing God's presence, but when, we, when we're doing God's work, when we're working with God in partnership with Him, uh, we powerfully experience His presence. Okay? It's through that kind of activity we come to know who God really is. Right? As we work in the soil and plant the seed, and we wait upon God's Spirit to be poured out, and then out of it comes fruit, and through that we work with God, through that we come to know Him, and we experience His presence. And we become... Uh, as, as Jesus says in John 4, there's a reward for those who harvest and those who plant. We share in the participation of God's work in the world. Right? And there's powerful experience of God's presence in that. If you've ever had the chance of, of sharing Christ with someone and them actually receiving and responding, you know something of what that is. right? You know. Uh, if you've ever had the chance of somebody coming to you whose life was falling apart, or their marriage was falling apart, or they were in huge trouble, and you, and you, and you have no idea what to say, and they are calling out for you to, for help, and you just say, God, I have no idea how to help these people, and you just say something. God brings a Bible verse, or you say something really stupid, and you go, that was really just stupid, you know. And a month later, they come in and you go, I just want to thank you for sharing with me. You, you saved my life. I just, God, you know, spoke through you. And you're going, whoa, <laughs> that really was God, because I had no idea what I said. But I was faithful to do my part, and God was faithful to do his part. And we experience God's presence, right? We have the, the powerful opportunity to know what it is to, to be used of God and to work in harmony with him. Okay, so the first thing, uh, we, we know God through our partnership working with him, right? Second thing um, is our partnership with God. Second thing is, is uh, basically, uh, go, go to the next slide, please. Working in the dirt. First point, we are all dirt bags. There you go. Yeah, this is a great truth. We are all dirt bags. Um, you know, as God saw this situation, he created man, and it says that he formed him from the dust of the ground. Now, you know, God could have picked a lot of things as building material because ultimately it's all molecules and really he could have picked anything. The reality is, of course, we know, you know, science tells us that our body is mostly water. I think this would have been a much better image. You know, why didn't God say he made them out of the water of the, of the spring, right? Spring bubbling up, this picture of life and kind of dynamic, clean, pure, you know, bubbly. I like water, right? I say, let's take a vote. How many say, you know, he formed them out of the water of the spring? This just sounds better, right? But no, we're dirt bags, right? He formed us out of the dirt, out of the dust. What is with that? Uh, well, certainly in this context, it had a lot to do with our deep connection with the soil. We come from the soil. Our life is spent working in the soil for Adam and Eve anyway. We, we're not there anymore, but... Uh, you know, the, the goal was that we would farm, we would dig, we would derive our daily needs out of the dirt, right? And then when we die, we would return to the dirt. Uh, what, what is that all about? Well, it really is a picture that we are very finite beings, okay? We are very limited, finite creatures who are very much tied to and connected to the earth. 
we are we we are and we need to come to the appreciate the perspective that we really are nothing more than dirt bags. Okay, we really are nothing more than just a pile of dirt on one level. Okay, on one level, um, and it really is a picture that our life is very much like the soil. Uh, in the plane that, that God was talking about here. There's a very real sense in which what our life is, is dirt, is a field waiting uh, to grow the crop, right? And if the crop is going to come about, what's necessary? Well, you've got to have the soil, you've got to have the farmer, and you've got to have what? God. You've got to have the one sending the rain. And it is a great picture of how we are finite beings who are incredibly dependent on God. Okay, so not only, do we need, not only do we need God to grow anything or to be fruitful, to be successful in life, but in our very life, our very being is one of absolute dependence upon God. Okay? We are simply dirt, but we're not just dirt. We are, we are dirt, and, and in that, our life is, is, is very dependent on the rain. Uh, and in this passage, he, he tells us the rain, he uses a different image. He says... He made them out of the dust, but then he did what? He breathed into them the breath of, of life. The breath of God, actually. Okay, he breathed into them the breath of life. So we're dirt bags, but we're dirt bags filled with God's breath. Okay? Now, of course, God doesn't have a body. God doesn't actually have breath. And uh, he's not here talking just about our breathing. Okay? The animals also breathe, uh, but they are not animated with the breath of God. The breath of God is much more than just... <laughs> Breathing, right? Getting out of out of air, gasping for oxygen. Okay, it really is a picture of our spiritual nature, right? The word that's used here for breath is a word that's very close and, and used sometimes interchangeably with the word for spirit or wind, spirit, right? We are spirit beings, and so on the one hand we're just dirt, but we're dirt animated and filled with the very life and breath of God. We have a soul and a spirit, and that soul and spirit is derived from God Himself. We are very much like God on that side because we're soil, but we're soil that God has poured out the river of his own spirit that animates and gives us life. So we are filled with the breath of God and everything we have uh, derives its existence from God. Bottom line, what this means is we really do need God. We are very dependent uh, beings who need him both for our daily supply of needs as well as for our very spiritual being. I was talking with somebody here recently and we were talking about you know, how, um, how God provides for our daily needs. We're talking about the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily needs. And they said, well, you know, I don't ever really pray that because I don't really need anything. Reality is, you know, sadly, we, we live in a time and an age when we have gotten so far away from, uh, from, from Genesis 2. You know, we, we're no longer farmers. We no longer depend on the dirt. And so we are largely removed from that. And it's true that we've become so affluent and so well off that many of us really don't need anything day by day. Um, you know, we need to get back to our dirt existence. You know, we need to remind ourselves how fragile and frail our life is and that we are absolutely dependent on God. I told this particular person, I said, well, you could fix that really easy by just giving away everything you own. <laughs> and then you would have to trust God every day. Right? Maybe we should do that. Uh, give away everything we own 
so that we really do need to rely on God day by day for our needs. Right? Uh, what would that do for our faith and our spiritual walk if we really actually had to trust God for lunch today? Right? Okay? Sadly, we've gotten so far away from that. But it's good for us to remind ourselves we are dirt. We really are just dirt. Our life is very fragile and frail. We need God every minute of every day to sustain us and to lead us, to teach us and to guide us. Um, we experience God and come to know Him through that dependent relationship on Him. Okay, the, the sad reality is if, if we're living a life where we no longer need God, uh, we, we're in trouble. And that's where the world is today. The reality is, and here, here's the sad truth, we in our ingeniousness and our, our wisdom have actually uh, brought dominion of the earth to such a level it's almost to our harm. And what I mean by that is we, we really have in many respects as human beings overcome the curse. You've got cursed the ground and said you're going you're gonna to harvest your crops with difficulty. But the reality is we, we've largely overcome that uh, in the farming world. We have tractors, big tractors, you know, uh, we have, you know, we built reservoirs, massive reservoirs that capture the rainwater. We don't have to pray for rain. We've got reservoirs of it. We've got, you know, we don't have to deal with weeds. We've got chemicals that just kill it all, right? Bugs, no problem. We've got a chemical for that. Um, so we've been given this abundance of food, and, you know, we've beat God on that level. And human beings at large have come to the point of thinking they beat God on all levels. We don't need God. Who needs God? Right? It's important for us to go back to the dirt. To know that ultimately we do experience God's presence in our life by living in a dependent relationship on Him. So it's good to structure your life in a way that you're not relying on the world, but you truly are relying on God for your being. All right? Even for your daily needs. All right? Uh, that's God's design in the garden, that we would be dependent creatures. All right, third area where we, we know God um, through our work as worship, the work of worship. Um, in verse 15, he says, The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend it and watch over it. Uh, the words there, tend and watch over, uh, are literally the, the words for work and to guard. Okay, they were to work in the garden. And what's interesting about the word, the word there, work, it can mean work as in a field or in a, in a vocation. But throughout the Old Testament, it's used most often to describe uh, the service of the priests and Levites in the temple. Okay, it's a word that really means a spiritual service of worship. Uh, in the New Testament, the, the word, the, the Greek word that's it's equivalent of this word is used in uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, where it says, Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's that word. Okay, I use three words to translate one. Spiritual service of worship. And the idea is worshiping God through our deeds, through our actions, okay, through our service of work. There's something very worshipful, something very God-honoring about the service of work. 
um, giving to God our service. In fact, in the garden, it was really one of the highest forms of worship. You, know, you don't see them doing any other real kind of worship. You don't see them singing. You don't see them offering sacrifices in the garden. Later, you do. Um, you, you see them walking with God in the cool of the day, and you can assume that there's some worship there. But really, the main activity that's credited to them as worship is their work. Their work in the garden. Uh, doing the work of God is worship. Okay? Now, not all work is worship, but the work that God calls us to and the work we do in conjunction with Him is always worship. Okay? It's always, and it really is one of our highest forms of worship. Um, the question is, are we really doing the work that is worshipful? Or are we just busy? In fact, my question, and I was really struck with this this week, are we too busy to work? All right? And we think that if we are busy doing something, we are working, right? Uh, however, if you put this in a farming analogy, if you're farming, work involved one of these things. Tilling, planting, irrigating, uh, weeding, or harvesting, okay? Now, it was necessary sometimes to, to maintain the tools or to build tools or to strategize where the water is going to go. But if you spend all your time fixing your shovel and cleaning your hoe and got really busy with cataloging your fields and measuring your fields, it was possible to get so busy doing other stuff you'd never actually farm. Now, I know farmers like this. You know? <laughs> they got the great best tractors in the world, pretty fences. They never grow anything, right? It's possible to be too busy, so busy that you never do the work. Uh, this is pictured extremely well in, in Mark chapter 11. In the context of Mark chapter 11, Jesus has just entered, he's just had the triumphal entry, he's entered Jerusalem, they sang Hosanna to him. First thing he does is he goes into the temple, and what does he do? It says, when they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers, and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, The scriptures declare, My temple will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. I just thought, I just thought, you know, that's just such a great picture. The temple is supposed to be a pattern of the garden. And it foreshadows really our life and our existence as the temple. Jesus came and died. He destroyed the temple. He did away with the temple and temple worship. We are now his temple. And I thought, you know, in my life, in our life, what kind of temple are we? And, you know, I wonder how many temples, if Jesus had the opportunity to come in, he would just have to clean house. Because it is full of stuff. It is busy. Okay, this temple was busy. When Jesus walked into this temple, it was during Passover, it was jam-packed with stuff. All kinds of things going on. It was busy. It was active. There was everything you could imagine. People everywhere. Animals and stuff selling, buying, selling, getting ready for sacrifices. All in the name of preparing for worship. And what did Jesus do? He said, you are busy, but you are not doing the work of the temple. This is not worship. And Jesus went in and he cleaned it out because their temple was full of junk. Right? You know, in our life as a temple, what have we filled it with? You know, have we filled it with busyness and activity that has nothing to do with worship? 
Right? How do you know it has something to do with worship? Well, Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. You know, if there is not within us a temple, a quiet, sacred place where we pray to God, where we meet with Him daily, where, where He resides not in the chaos of activity, but in the stillness of His presence, uh, our work will not be worship, right? It has to start from the inner core of our being where God resigns and rules, where he governs it himself, and where it is free of all the debris and junk of this life. It's interesting. They really had turned the temple into a consumer marketplace, right? A consumer marketplace. Uh, One of the great marks of our age is we are a society driven by consumerism, by stuff, right? by activities and by schedules and marketing and all this stuff. But are we known as a people of prayer? Okay? If God were to shine a spotlight on this temple of your soul, what would he find there? Would it be a house of prayer? Or would it just be a place of busyness and activity where we're doing so much stuff, we're too busy to work? Well, finally, under this... Uh, we really have the privilege of doing everything to God's glory. Bottom line, that's what he's saying here. All of our work, all of our activity, if it begins with prayer and flows out of a heart of prayer and worship, everything we do ought to be to God's glory. As uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. How would that change what we do and how we do it? You know, how would it change how you drive? If every time you got in the car, before you turned the key, you said, I'm going to drive to the glory of God. Right? I decided what it would mean is it would take me a lot longer to get anywhere. <laughs> That's what it would mean. Because I would have to drive much more patiently. I would have to try to be a Christian witness in my driving. It would take me a lot longer to get there. Right? As I, as I exercise grace in my driving, and I do it to worship God, it means I couldn't actually try to run people over, right? I would have to exercise restraint, right? Just one example. What would it mean to do your homework uh, to the glory of God? To say, God, I want this research paper, you know, to be to the glory of God, right? Uh, what would it mean in our daily activities to do everything to the glory of God? It's great when the in the early early Celtic church, when the, the Irish first came to Christ and were very much alive with Christ and very dynamic faith, they really believed this principle and practiced it diligently, that everything could be done in worship to God. And to help them do this, they wrote all kinds of crazy little prayers about everything. They had prayers for getting up in the morning. They had prayers for eating breakfast. They had prayers for milking the cow, right? Everything. They'd start with a prayer so that it would be an act of worship and devotion to God. Right? Uh, one example, uh, and I tried to find the milking cow prayer. I'm sorry, I couldn't find it. It's a great one, but I couldn't find it. Here's one, though. Bless, O God, the dwelling, and each who rests herein this night. Bless, O God, my dear ones, in every place wherein they sleep. And the night that is tonight, and every single night, and the day that is today, 
and every single day. Everything was to be to, to bring glory to God. So when they went to bed at night, their sleeping was worship. They got up in the morning, their eating breakfast was worship. Right? Imagine if we lived this way. Well, for one, it would change the way we live. But another thing it would do is it would deepen our experience of God's presence. One of the most significant ways you can come to know God's presence in your daily life is if you make everything you do an offering of worship to Him. One of the reasons we don't connect with God is because we go from morning to night, busy, 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 busy. We get to the end of the day, and where's God been? Well, He's been trying to keep up with us, you know, running at a full speed, trying to keep up. When He gets to us, man, you're, you're too busy. It's like, oh yeah, I forgot. I was going to think about God today. I was going to do this God thing today. I forgot. Right? right? Have you ever had days like that? Weeks? Whole life like that, right? We're so busy and we, we, we don't include God in it. See, one of the ways we experience God's presence in a very real and practical, tangible way is to make everything we do worship to Him. Everything. God, I give you this, my driving today, my drive to Lotus. May it be worship to you. May you go with me. May my thought be toward you. Right? That's how we experience God's presence. And that's what God intended for them in the garden. That every, every act, every deed, as they go out and cultivate, as they weed, as they irrigated, it'd be a gift of worship to God. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, and I really believe that every person here really wants to know what it means to walk with you. And the sad reality, Lord, is that uh, our lives are so full and busy and disconnected and disjointed that uh, there's just no space for you in our life. We really have lost this great value of, of our work being a gift to you. And indeed, every activity of our life being active sacred devotion and worship that, that God you have given us the incredible privilege of doing your work on this world uh, the work of your kingdom the work of bringing your word and your truth and your salvation to the world around us that we are to be light in the darkness Lord we, we want to know you and we want to experience your presence Lord, we want to be people who are actively, daily, diligently uh, working in partnership and ministry with you. And uh, that everything we do is in total dependence upon you. That we seek the uh, infilling of your spirit in our lives and the outpouring of your spirit in our ministries around us. Lord, that, uh, that we would just depend on you for the the ultimate resource is to be fruitful. Lord, we, we, we do want to give our lives to you. And most of all, Lord, we do want to walk with you in ways that are real and tangible. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.